Welcome to another Godcast from Whosoever, an online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians. I'm Candace Shalou Hodge, the founder and editor of Whosoever. Thanks for joining us. When does righteousness cross the line from a noble, healthy pursuit to an addiction? In his new book, When Religion is an Addiction, Dr. Bob Miner gives us some hints on how to tell when good religion goes bad. He'll tell us all about it. What happens when a religious high school teenager in a small conservative town struggles with his sexual orientation when a new boy who says he's gay and Christian shows up at school? The drama plays out in Alex Sanchez's new book, The God Box. We'll talk with him about his new book and find out just who his biggest audience really is. And it's not gay boys. We'll also take a meditation moment and we'll wrap it up with some holy humor. To hear someone say they are high on Jesus doesn't really sound like a bad thing. As Christians, we're all called to be zealous for our faith, but according to Bob Miner, a professor of religious studies at the University of Kansas, those who can't live without that high of righteousness are not faithfully zealous, but instead they are addicts and their drug is religion. In his new book, When Religion is an Addiction, Dr. Miner explores the concept of religion as an addiction, how to identify, how to resist it, and most importantly, how we as liberal Christians can stop enabling the religious addict. I spoke with Dr. Miner recently and asked him how his book came about. This was a uh, sort of a long-term, maybe not too long-term, but let's say five, six years of thinking, um, asking the question, why are certain things, um, uh, not so much what people believe, but why they hang on to them, and why in the midst of uh, everything that's going on, people just continue to not seem to there's a group of people who continue to not seem to get uh, uh, not seem to get through to them. It's just it's as if reason, <clears throat> rationality, quoting the Bible, none of these things seem to work. And of course, it started with LGBT issues, but it went even further. And um, I've always wanted to ask the question, why? Uh, when I did uh, Scared Straight, the question was, why are we still stuck in my mind? Why are we still stuck on this? Why aren't we over this? And this was the same thing. Uh, <clears throat> With this uh, book, um, began with an article uh, that I wrote, a, a column I wrote, which is on whosoever, mm-hmm. uh, when religion is an addiction, and continued to sort of think about it, and then look at, began to look at addiction literature, and uh, um, uh, look more deeper into things like addictive thinking and types of that, and it just seemed to be a parallel that I couldn't ignore anymore, and that people weren't really talking about when they talked about this. So, so what is a religious addiction? What are some of the markers that we're talking about? Uh, an addiction, and of course religious addiction the same way, is something, can be a process, it can process addiction, or a, um, a substance addiction that keeps a person from dealing with their issues. And those issues could be as personal as, I hate my work, uh, it's, it's causing me to get sick and so on, but instead of... Uh, going through a very difficult process of thinking about how do I relate to my work, what does it do to me, Um, why am I continuing to do this then, how would I make changes, what what fears do I have to face to make changes, I just come home at night and I have a couple of beers and then after a couple of beers I sort of feel better and I don't make any changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just sort of the beginning of it. And I, again, I, not that there's anything ever wrong with the substance itself, I'm saying, but it's how it's being used. <clears throat> so when religion is used that way, and again, I don't talk much in terms of the doctrines, except the doctrine of evil. I do work on that one in a way, because I think that's a key 
uh, teaching, because addictive thinking is always about, always begins, I'm told, with, um, uh, from what I read, with uh, um, poor self-concept. And certainly this uh, major doctrine of evil that is dominant in very conservative religion is, is the ultimate in poor self-concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I'm totally rotten, that there's nothing I can do about it, that the only thing that's... Uh, makes me valuable if somebody else likes me. Um, you know, it's the difference between a theology that says God loves us because we're valuable and one that says you're only valuable because God loves you. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, beginning with that, but that other than that doctrine, it's a question of how religion is used. And then I began to look at what are some of the distinctions uh, when we, people talk about addictive thinking, uh, such as either or thinking. It's either black or white. It's either people are either for us or against us. Um, uh, perfectionist thinking, you know, um, not taking responsibility for my position, which is a common thing. That, that, yeah, that's one I've run into a lot. Um, and, and, I'll bet you do. Well, and, and especially on Internet message boards that I've, I've frequented before where, where I've had people tell me, um, you know, I, I would have no problem with gays, but but God hates gays, so I have to hate gays. I mean, <laughs> yes. It's like, yes. do, you even, do you even think while you're typing? <laughs> I think Oh, but, but there is addictive thinking. It isn't making any sense. Uh, as, uh, as I quote Tversky, Abraham Tversky in my book, you know, I, um, identifying addictive thinking always has to start from outside the attic. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like this doesn't make any sense, but it's, uh, it, uh, uh, to the addict, it's just not there because this is about the goal of addiction is to get the high. Yeah. And if the high is I am righteous... Mm-hmm. and the feeling that I'm righteous, then whatever I do will be to get the feeling of I am righteous again, whether and whoever, whomever you step on, uh, whatever happens, uh, um, the goal is that. And, you know, this is what we see that is, it's, I'm sure you get these, these emails like I do when you write something, but, well, don't you know the Bible? And they go on and on about all the Bible verses. Yeah, it's like, like you've never read it. Yeah, they've never read it. And, <laughs> That's the addictiveness. Yeah. It's not about. It's not even about. This is how I interpret the Bible. No, no. I understand the Bible. It's about. It's the Bible's fault, right? Or, or God's fault, you know. Well, the the one I run into the most is is I don't interpret the Bible. I just read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like well. Yeah, you read the cereal box, but that's all interpretation. <laughs> but you can't tell them that. that, that you know, they're like, no, I don't interpret. I read. <laughs> okay. That's what I'm saying is that it's, it's not taking, as you point out, it's not taking responsibility yeah. for what we have when we come and, and look at something like the Bible or, or people look at any scriptures in terms of our, our problems, our issues, our prejudices, and so on. And therefore, it's a way to not look at my prejudices. The, the reality is, um, a person like that is prejudiced against LGBT people for one reason or another. Maybe mm-hmm. because of their own issues. Maybe because of uh, uh, they don't know what that means in terms of their own sexuality. I don't know. But instead of looking at that, they use the religion to cover it up. Right. That's, that's the addictive part of it. Right. I can put that off on God. <laughs> yes. Then I don't that's have to think about it anymore. Yeah. Yes, yes. And that's it. See, you're right. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to analyze anything about me. I don't have to think that, well, maybe this is just my prejudice. I don't have to think, well, maybe this is just all I've heard and I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. I don't have to deal with anything like that because it's all God's fault. <laughs> right. God said it, so I've got to follow it. Right, you know, right. So it's, it's, it's out of my hands. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had that one, too. If you don't like it, take it up with God. I can just imagine that. <laughs> Who should I believe, you or God? Exactly. <laughs> and how do you answer that? Because... 
if, if there's no rational answer you can give to that. Right. Uh, it becomes really frustrating. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> that's what addictive religion is doing to a lot of people. It's just getting frustrating. We're jumping up and down the same place. It's just frustrating, and nothing seems to get across. So the reason I wrote when religion's addiction isn't really for the addict, it's for the rest of us, mm-hmm. so that we can sort of try to break through this for our own health. <laughs> right, 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 because I, I eventually just had to stop, you know, because mm-hmm. it's, it's like beating your head against a wall. Um, well, I how do you... it in what you write. I appreciate that. Let me just say I appreciate it in what you write. I see a lot of, uh, you're not sort of enabling this stuff. You're just, you know, you're trying to... You know, I'm trying. As they would say in psychology, you are setting your boundaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, again, that for, for many liberals, that doesn't seem to be the nice way to do it. Well, exactly. I mean, let's talk about that. You know, you 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 state in your book that liberals are enabling these addicts. How how do we do that? I like that quotation credited to Robert Frost, which says, "A liberal is a man." He uses he uses the male. Mm-hmm. Liberal is a man uh, who. Is so open-minded, he's unable to take his own side in an argument. <laughs> and haven't we seen that happen before? <laughs> you know, and, and frankly, I, I, it frustrates me about a lot of people in the Democratic Party oh, sure. watching daily, you know, and mm-hmm. I hear why they relate to this stuff. Um, but it, it, the enabling part is, is sort of a self-blaming that we do. Mm. And so we look at people, and, and whether it's a person as extreme as Fred Phelps, whether it's a person like uh, Jerry Falwell was, um, whether it's just the, our, our parents who are, who are just stuck this way, um, we look at them and then we think, well, now, ultimately, this is my fault. <laughs> but we say it this way. If I just understood them better, yeah. if I just were nicer, if I just um, could love them more, if I just spent more time trying to understand their view of life, their way of thinking, if I just realized that they're hurting too. And so I use this kind of of these things because we don't want to be as liberals we don't want to be misunderstanding of people we like to believe we are understanding people and but I we use those things we begin to sound like an abused spouse who's (laughs) saying who's saying that um, you know I I uh, he really does love me they really do love me it's just that I'm not nice enough and so the focus becomes this what's called co-addiction by the addiction people what's called enabling Mm -hmm. uh, what's called uh, codependence that we begin to talk as if this whole problem is ours and therefore we're afraid to say you know what and I'm not saying we should necessarily say this directly but we're afraid to say it you're a religious addict mm-hmm. and you need help yeah. uh, whereas sometimes we need to say you have a prejudice and you're using God to, to, um, to mask your prejudice you need to get some help but we can't say that because we're too nice. Yeah. You know, we, we, that just sounds like something that will offend. And we don't want to offend. <laughs> well, they go around offending everybody all over the world. So what can we do then? How do we confront addicts when we meet them? Yeah, well, the first thing we have to do is, is and, and this is the part that activists don't like in my book. Um, first thing we have to do is, is look at our own issues around religion. Mm-hmm because um, it, it, there's always an internal part of a journey and a, an external part of every journey. And since this is about healing ourselves, this is about being healthy ourselves, we have to look at how, they, how we get hooked, because that keeps us from thinking creatively. And that's mm-hmm. a very hard thing for many people to do. It'd be you just become someone who's against the religious addicts and then turn that into an addiction mm-hmm. that doesn't deal with our own issues around religion. Oh, yeah. since most of us have been hurt somewhere around it. 
So the first thing is that. The second thing is we need to begin to get strategies that take uh, where, where we get the addict out of the sort of driver's seat. You know, you wouldn't drive around in a car with someone who's high on something. Mm-hmm. So they're, on, they're, they're in the driver's seat in our society. They're, they're, they've got one initiative after another. They're the center of attention in our society, just like an addict is the center of attention in their home. Uh, so we've got to begin to stop responding to their initiatives and start believing that what we have to say is true and good and right. And that's sometimes hard because we don't like to say those things. It sounds so, so absolute. Uh, we have to begin to believe that and act like it, which means we have to begin to say, I want to do this. So publicly it means we have to start the initiatives through which we'll fail. When they, when it's the first initiative we have on, in, in many places about just adding sexual orientation protection to mm-hmm. a, a, a state's law or a city's law will probably fail. But then we come back again. Because the only way you know that someone really values someone, something, and the only way people really see it is if they're willing to lose for it. Yeah. In other words, if, if our goal is just what will keep me elected or, or what is going to win now as opposed to what do you value, then... We're not ready to say we really value it because I have to lose sometimes for my value. If the goal is just to win, it's not a moral goal. But if the goal is to say I have to stick with my values at all costs, then we're really living our own life and facing our own fears. Again, Dr. Miner's new book is called When Religion is an Addiction. He's the author of several other books, including Scared Straight and Gay and Healthy in a Sick Society. His books are available through the Whosoever Bookstore. Go to whosoever.org slash index.shtml and click on Bookstore. You can also sign up for Dr. Miner's newsletter at fairnessproject.org. never easy, but when you're a teenage boy struggling to come to terms with your sexual orientation, it doesn't help matters when a new student shows up at school proclaiming he's both gay and Christian. That's the situation faced by a boy named Paul in Alex Sanchez's new novel, The God Box. On a personal note, I don't really like to read fiction because, you know, most novels, they don't really hold my attention. But I could not put down the God Box, literally. It is well-written, fast-paced, and full of tension and drama that force you to stay in your seat and just keep turning pages. I was happy to talk with Alex Sanchez about his new book. He began our interview with an overview of the novel. Well, basically, the story focuses on a couple of uh, teenagers in Texas, uh, high school students, and uh, even though, you know, it's, it, they're Latino, it's not about that. They just happen to be Mexican-American. And what it really focuses on is uh, one boy, uh, Paul, who uh, has had uh, these attractions to uh, other boys uh, all growing up and really struggled against that as uh, he's also uh, accepted himself as a Christian and uh, also has a best girl uh, friend who he's a uh, boyfriend, he's a couple with. Mm-hmm. And so uh, his world is sort of, uh, he keeps trying to suppress his sexuality, and then his world is sort of turned upside down when a new boy, uh, Manuel, arrives at school who is uh, openly both gay and Christian. 
And you create a lot of tension uh, between the characters here. Uh, you've, you've got tension just in Paul himself having to accept his Christianity and his sexuality uh, as far as tension between him and Manuel and tension between uh, Paul and the, the Bible Club and, right. and Paul and his girlfriend. I mean, it just it, it, all of that tension just moves the story along. Was that, was that intentional? Absolutely, it's you know that that tense, tension conflict is the uh, essence of drama, mm-hmm. and uh, that's also what really uh, inspires emotions to get played out as characters are, are struggling with uh, you know what they believe, what they what they love, what they like, what they don't like, you know what challenges them. So really trying to to raise the stakes as much as possible to create that tension, and that's part of what you know it keeps keeps the reader engaged, is wanting to find out well well, well then what's going to happen. <laughs> it's true, and I was quite engaged. Um, so you, they say that Paul and Manuel uh, are, are both Hispanic. Uh, that is part of your background, though, right? Right. I'm, I'm an immigrant uh, from Mexico. Uh, my family moved to the U.S. when I was uh, five years old. And, in fact, we moved to, uh, moved to Texas, uh, the setting of the novel. So, like in a lot of my writing, I, I draw upon my experiences. That's sort of how I breathe life into the characters, is, is identifying, well, how am I like them? How are, uh, how are they like me? At least, you know, being able to find some, some uh, similarities, some things that uh, I can identify with. And, and they're usually pretty universal things that then readers can identify with as well. And the gay Christian theme is very prominent in this book. Is that, um, is that a topic you've ever tackled before in any works of, your, of fiction? Not in fiction, uh, but uh, certainly in, in my own life. Uh, uh, you know, as, as I've, you know, worked to, to, to reconcile, you know, my sexuality and my spirituality, uh, you know, two very important aspects of, of, of myself. So there, you know, writing this book was was uh, you know a way for me to to you know both express express my thoughts and also dig deeper into them and into my own experiences and well, what do I believe and what do I think about that and and then in such a way that uh, you know it, it then can allow you know the reader to also engage into that same sort of questioning process. What do you hope that the that the kids, um, well, and the adults too? I recommend it to adults. But <laughs> what do you hope that, especially teenagers, will will get out of this book? Well, part of what part of what inspired this book was was certainly my own, um, you know, my own experiences, but um, also as the result of uh, you know the other books that I've written, the uh, Rainbow Boys and and uh, the other ones that. Uh, I get a lot of emails from from teens, mm-hmm. and uh, it, part of what inspired this book was how many of those emails, uh, you know, related to me, the struggles that young people today are going 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 through to to sort of reconcile their religion and and uh, and and their sexual identity or sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. I think you know a big difference from from when when I was growing up. Uh, in the in the 60s and 70s is is you know that was a time when gay and lesbian people were a lot more invisible than we are today. Sure. And uh, I certainly didn't know anyone who was openly gay, and we didn't have you know the the 
constant mention of, of gays and lesbians in the news, and we didn't have, you know, as the dark ages before Will and Grace. Exactly. <laughs> when and Melissa Etheridge was still in the closet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. And so I think that's, uh, you know, the big difference with young people today is that they do have those images and references, you know, being able to put uh, a name to, you know, what they're feeling, what they're thinking, some of their experiences. But at the same time, then, uh, what the piece that they still have to figure out then is, okay, then, that, but how does that reconcile with me as a spiritual being? Mm -hmm. And I think far too often what happens is that young people are sort of presented with this false choice of, I can either be gay or I can be Christian. Right. And so what I'm hoping with this book is to help uh, young people work through that. That it isn't that it is in fact a false choice. That they don't have to choose one or the other. That they can come to their own understanding of themselves as uh, as uh, uh, you know uh, individuals who can integrate those two very important parts of themselves: their sexuality and their spirituality. And also, you know, presented in such a way that it is an engaging, compelling story, where they can care about the characters and then uh, come to care about themselves. And you do touch uh, briefly about uh, ex-gay ministries, that, that Paul is given a, a pamphlet and, and visits with, with someone from an ex-gay ministry, but they, they don't come off looking very well in your book. <laughs> Have you had experiences with ex-gay ministries? Um, not personally. It hasn't been something that uh, that I've uh, been involved with. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, there there have been times in my life when I just, I didn't want to be gay. Yeah. Because of, you know, uh, struggles that I was going through and thinking that, well, the problem was that I was gay. And if I could stop being gay, then, you know, the rest of my problems would go away. Mm -hmm. And realizing that, no, it doesn't work that way. And so coming at it from that viewpoint, I think that's what uh, inspired me to, you know, yes, look, you know, uh, deal with uh, the ex-gay issue in the book, but do it in a compassionate way that, uh, you know, I think that people who who uh, become involved in ex-gay ministries, I mean, they're they're struggling with their own integrity to integrate those different pieces, mm -hmm. and uh, I think, you know, just as there are many people who do get involved with those ministries, there are a lot more people out there who have gone through different times in their lives where, when they really questioned, well, you know, is being gay or lesbian really, you know, something that, that I can integrate into my being or, or not? Uh, and then along with that, I, I think also you know, working with my editor, uh, I have a wonderful editor, uh, uh, and uh, one of the things he said at the outset as I started writing this book is, is you know, really work at avoiding stereotypes mm -hmm. and uh, try to present, you know, complex characters who are struggling. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that makes for uh, a more compelling book. Oh, yes, yes, very much so. You said that there were times that, that you didn't, want to be gay and and in the book you 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 make arguments on both sides you know for and against uh, uh, you know Christianity in particular um, being okay with with uh, gay people um, what made it okay for for you to be gay for you to, uh, to get over those feelings if you are over those feelings of, of wanting to not be gay anymore well I, th I think uh, 
I think what happens, one of the things that I've learned through my writing is, you know, actually my biggest readership is, is not gays and lesbians. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually straight teenage girls. And what I have learned from them is that so much of what I write about, even though it is about uh, uh, gay teenagers, it's really about uh, learning to be who we are, to love and accept ourselves as who we, uh, you know, as as we are. And I think that is a universal struggle. Sure. And uh, that's one of the things that I've learned from those from those straight readers. And so for me, uh, I think a lot of what uh, what has happened is just coming to understand that you know I am who I am, and being gay is a part of that. And uh, you know, it's something that I can uh, love and express, uh, rather love and embrace and accept, or something that I can. Uh, a struggle, struggle against, and in that process of acceptance, and that you know uh, opens up you know ways for me not just to uh, you know love myself more, but then also to be you know more compassionate and understanding of other people. So I don't think it's been you know one specific thing that's that's uh, brought me to that point, mm-hmm. but uh, just a lot of my experiences. Uh, that I've had in life and, and, and with others uh, who've taught me how to love myself more. I'm interested in what the straight teenage girls tell you <laughs> when they write to you. What's their reactions to the book? Well, to, to your past books? Yeah, well, what happens is, is that I think a lot of uh, uh, straight teenage girls today, I mean, I, I think there are several things going on. One is that they see uh, gay and lesbian rights as, as an important social justice issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing is that so many of them have uh, openly gay or lesbian friends mm-hmm. and oftentimes uh, openly gay or lesbian relatives uh, and in, in you know, many cases also parents as well. So they're they're very aware of the issues, and it's an issue in which they don't have much competition from, uh, you know, a lot of the straight boys. Yeah. So, for example, a lot of the gay straight alliances in 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 the schools, uh, since you know I visit a lot of high schools, it was uh, very interesting at the outset for me to learn that you know even though the, there's some you know right wing extremists who present the gay straight alliances as homosexual clubs, that in many of the schools, Schools, those those clubs are led primarily by those straight teenage girls wow. who, uh, as I said, really see this as an important issue and uh, work hard to bring it to the to the forefront. So I, I you know, when when I talk to groups, one of the things I, I often speak about is our need to uh, remember those straight allies, mm-hmm. especially among young people, because they're really working hard to change things. Uh, you know, so that you know, we get more of the equality and the inclusion that that uh, that we'd like. You know, in many cases, they are our champions. I mean, I know you're on a book tour right now, and you're and you're very busy promoting the God Box. But is there anything else in the works uh, coming up? Yeah, uh, what happens is I think you know, as I mentioned before, because of my own uh, adolescence and just so many things that uh, I wasn't able to express and discuss and, and talk about then, I just you know didn't have the language and the courage uh, to do it then. Uh, it's like that that sort of inner teenager is still very vocal and and outspoken. They always are. 
Yeah. They always are. Yeah. So uh, I'm continuing to to write manuscripts about uh, about teens. Great. So I have a contract now for for two more books. Wonderful. Yeah, and and what happens is, you know, as I said, I didn't I, I didn't sort of set it out this way. It's just sort of the way that it's it's played out in my life, and and I've. Uh, you know, very fortunate that this is such a timely issue now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as schools are are changing, uh, you know, more and more schools they see these books as resources yeah. uh, for them to understand uh, young people. It's amazing how quickly things are changing. Even you know, five or six years ago, when I first began touring with the books, and uh, back then. Uh, you know, I'd still hear from teachers, well, you know, we just don't have any gay kids in our school. <laughs> and I'd say, well, you don't have any openly gay kids in yeah. your school. <laughs> and you may want to look at why that is. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, are you creating a safe environment for them so that they feel comfortable coming out? Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, as I say, that was only five or six years ago, and now it's it's amazing how many gay straight lines as there are and how many educators have begun to realize, oh yeah, this is a population we need to, uh, you know, address and we need to look at uh, homophobia and name calling in the schools. And, uh, you know, even in terms of the emails that I get now, there's still so much harassment and name calling going on, but I'm hearing less and less uh, of the sort of uh, uh, beatings that I would hear about Mm -hmm. even, you know, five or six years ago. Well, hopefully your work will contribute to changing culture in uh, in high schools for the kids that are still struggling. Well, thank you. That's that. Uh, you know, as you say, that's it's been a real rewarding experience to hear about. Uh, you know, it's exciting for me just to be able to be part of that process. The God Box is available through Whosoever's Bookstore. Go to whosoever.org slash index.shtml and click on Bookstore. To learn more about Alex and to keep up with his book tour and career, visit his website at alexsanchez.com. In Alex Sanchez's book, The God Box, Paul's aunt says that the Bible was meant to be a bridge, not a wedge. She tells Paul, quote, it's the greatest love story ever told about God's enduring love for his creation, love beyond all reason. To understand it, you have to read it with love as the standard. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Always remember that, unquote. Paul's aunt is a wise woman. As GLBT people, we're often afraid to even go near the Bible, let alone see it as a love story. Those who are addicted to religion use the Bible as a weapon against us, using it to justify their bigotry and their rough treatment of our community. They talk about love. They tell us that they love us while they hate what they call our quote-unquote sin. But they've forgotten Paul's aunt's advice. Those who use the Bible as a weapon against others are not reading the Bible with love as the standard. Instead, they read it with their own prejudice, their own fears, and their own addiction as the standard. We need to be aware of how we read the Bible. Are we reading the Bible to exclude others or to include them? When we approach the Bible, are we approaching with an attitude of love or an attitude of winning an argument or scoring a point against someone who has attacked us? How would it change our lives if we always approached the Bible as a love story? 
How would we live differently if we understood that the Bible tells us nothing but how much God loves us, and not just us, but even those who are against us? How would we treat those addicted to religion if we approach them in love, not to be nice to the point of enabling them, but to point out to them in love that they are using religion to avoid dealing with life's troubles? When we read the Bible or even view the world with love as our standard, we understand that God's love never excludes. God's love never enables us to continue to avoid life's struggles and pain. Instead, God's love enfolds us, guides us, uplifts us, and gives us the strength to face life's uncertainties with faith and hope. Let us make love our standard. Let us never fear the Bible or those who hide behind it or use its words to condemn. Let us love God, neighbor, and self. Let us hear only words of love whenever we approach the scripture. Let us speak only words of love, no matter what the tone of the words we hear. we wrap up with some holy humor. Two doctors and an HMO manager died and lined up at the pearly gates for admission to heaven. St. Peter asks them to identify themselves. One doctor stepped forward and said, I was a pediatric spine surgeon and helped kids overcome their deformities. St. Peter said, you can enter. The second doctor said, I was a psychiatrist. I help people rehabilitate themselves. St. Peter also invited him in. The third man stepped forward and said, I was an HMO manager. I help people get cost-effective health care. St. Peter said, you can come in too. But as the HMO manager walked by, St. Peter added, you can stay three days. After that, you can go to hell. for joining us for another Whosoever Magazine Godcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can tell us your thoughts, comments, or suggestions by writing to us. Our email address is godcast at whosoever.org. Or you can leave comments at our blog at whosoeverpods.blogspot.com. The theme music for our program has been graciously provided by Adam Kiraly. Other music included samples from Heavy Mellow, Ron DeLawrence, Reza Manzuri, and Trip Wamsley. All available from magnatune.com. If you'd like to join the Whosoever community, we have many online groups that you can join for fun and support. You can find Whosoeverans in your area when you join our Rainbowfish groups. To find out more, go to whosoever.org slash rainbowfish. If you're enjoying our podcast, we hope you'll consider making a monetary donation to our ministry. It does take money to produce and broadcast this program and, of course, to keep our ministry on the web, where we've been a valuable resource to our community for more than a decade. You can donate by credit card by going to our website at whosoever.org slash donate, or you may send checks to Whosoever Ministries Incorporated, Post Office Box 727, Camden, South Carolina, 29021. Remember, Whosoever is a 501c3 nonprofit. That means all donations are tax deductible. Thank you for listening. May God's love and peace enfold you until we meet again.